This week, the restorative power of young blood. So almost everywhere they've looked, this young blood appears to have factors in it that heals and repairs organs that are aging. Plus increasing the safety of genetically modified organisms. This bug will only grow when you give it the non-standard amino acid and in the wild it can't find it and so it won't grow. And decoding the solar system's early magnetism from meteorites. This is The Nature Podcast for the 22nd of January 2015. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. In 1864, a French physiologist named Paul Baer stitched a pair of rats together. He wanted to show that these newly conjoined animals could form a shared circulatory system. I know, sounds pretty gross. But this technique, called parabiosis, is actually really useful and is still actually used today to study a number of things, from cancer to immunity. And a tantalising result from a 1970s experiment in rats suggested that young blood pumped through an older sidekick might actually make the elder live longer. This effect on lifespan is controversial, but what's becoming clear is that young blood has some rejuvenating powers on various organs. Most recently, the brain. Neuroscientists at Stanford showed that blood plasma from young mice caused brain cells to grow in older mice. And actually, now there's a human trial into the effects of young blood on Alzheimer's sufferers underway, and the results are expected by the end of the year. Don't worry, nobody gets stitched to anybody else. Science writer Megan Scudellari has written a feature about the uplifting effects of young blood, and I gave her a call. It's actually very simple. Um, The researchers just make a thin cut along the backs of the mice or the rats and then sew that incision together and natural wound healing does the rest. And the capillaries, which are these tiny little blood vessels, connect through the skin and then through those capillaries, the blood and the plasma can pass. Now, these parabiosis experiments have led to major discoveries about immunity, hormones and cancer, but the recent hype has been around ageing. How has parabiosis been used to study ageing? Aging, we know, is something that happens to your whole body. Your whole body at once ages. It's not like one organ starts to age and not your others. And so they, in the early 2000s at Stanford, paired together old mice and young mice through this uh, technique of parabiosis to see what would happen to their organs when the organs of the old mouse became awash in the blood of the young mouse. And the results of that study, and in fact several studies like it, seem to be suggesting that something in young blood has this rejuvenating effect on all these different organs of the body. It definitely seems like it. Um, There are teams at Harvard and Stanford and Berkeley, and they've all seen in different organs that young blood appears to activate the stem cells in the older mice. And that results in a variety of rejuvenation across organs. They all appear to look younger. And this is almost every organ they've looked at in the heart, in the muscle, in the nervous system, in the spine. It can repair damaged spinal cords. In the brain, it causes the growth of new brain cells. So almost everywhere they've looked, this young blood um, appears to have factors in it that really, through activating stem cells and causing the growth of new cells, um, heals and repairs organs that are aging. How do people think that this is, is acting on stem cells to reverse the aging process? Yeah, so that was one of the first questions of the researchers doing this. And so as soon as they saw this rejuvenation 
they went in and tried to isolate very specific factors out of the blood that were causing it. Um, first, they found out that if you take the blood cells out and just have the remaining liquid, that plasma is enough to also do the rejuvenation. Um, so they started, you know, peeling through the plasma, trying to figure out what it was. And they've identified a bunch of different factors. Um, one of them is oxytocin, uh, which is a hormone some of us know. Um, it's involved in childbirth, um, induces labor in pregnant women. Um, it's also already an FDA-approved drug, um, which is promising. So that can, oxytocin alone, appears to regenerate muscles um, in older mice. Also, uh, at Harvard, they identified this factor called growth differentiation factor 11 that, again, on its own was sufficient to increase the strength and the stamina of muscles, to reverse DNA damage, which we can think of as one of the causes of aging. Um, so it's most likely probably a combination of things in the blood, but slowly, one by one, they're figuring out what those things are. And we haven't honed in on, on what it is that had the re regenerating effect on brain cells, but you mentioned in your feature that there's already human trials set up for Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that so quickly, a lot of this work has been done since, you know, between 2005 and now in the lab, and already we've moved into human clinical trials, which is uh, very fast to go from the laboratory into the clinic. And what's happening is that uh, one of the experiments showed that young blood causes um, this growth of new brain cells in the older mice. And Alzheimer's disease, we know, which is one of um, the diseases of aging, is characterized by the loss of neurons of these brain cells. So um, they're hypothesizing that if we were to use young blood, or in this case, young plasma, just the plasma alone, again, not the red blood cells, that that might be enough to cause new brain cell growth and maybe treat Alzheimer's. So right now um, at Stanford, they are uh, getting blood and plasma from young men, actually men under 30, and then they're injecting that plasma into uh, Alzheimer's patients. It's going to be right now just a small trial, 18 people to start to see if that young plasma will actually uh, reduce the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Is anyone kind of worried about injecting, you know, different people's blood into, into older patients? Well, we do know from blood transfusions and plasma transfusions that this is a very safe procedure. I mean, millions of people have received blood and plasma transfusions. And just like those transfusions in the hospital, they're being very careful uh, to, to match the blood to the, and the plasma to the right patients. What scientists are, some have raised a few concerns about is that if, say, we started using young blood regularly to try to treat some of the diseases of aging, and maybe not just Alzheimer's, maybe other types of dementia, maybe heart disease. Since we know it works by activating stem cells, some folks are wary and would want to do a lot more research to make sure that the constant activation of stem cells over time wouldn't result in too many cells growing, which is the hallmark of cancer when your cells just grow out of control. Over the next 10 years, can you imagine the younger generations helping out their grandparents by giving them some of their blood? I could. I don't know if it'll happen over the next decade. But luckily, blood is is not hard to come by. We can donate it easily and our body makes more for us. Um, so if we really do show in humans that, that young blood or plasma can be helpful, can be a drug or treatment for the disease of aging, it wouldn't be very hard to gather it and use it. And even within one's own family, um, you know, maybe bank some blood of, of your kids or your grandkids uh, in case you need it. 
That was Megan Scudellari. Her feature is at nature.com slash news. In just a moment, we'll be talking ancient scrolls and a lost and found spacecraft with Richard Van Norden. But slipping in before that, reporter Ailey Dolgan visits a genetics lab in Boston to meet some unnatural creatures. Dan Mandel reaches into the incubator and pulls out a petri plate of E. coli. They look like any old bacteria, just a mass of little white spots. But these microbes are special. Their lives depend on a protein building block, an amino acid, not found anywhere in nature. So this synthetic amino acid, uh, to the best of our knowledge, doesn't resemble anything that exists in nature. And you can see in the presence of the synthetic amino acid, it grows fine, but not at all in the absence. It's the perfect pet for a control freak. Keep it supplied with its synthetic amino acid and it's happy. Without that, it can't survive. And so if this strain were to escape from the lab, um, it wouldn't grow. These bacteria at Harvard Medical School could hold the key to one of the biggest challenges in synthetic biology. It would be bad news if genetically modified organisms could spread into the environment and contaminate wild populations. The E. coli in this Harvard lab have been designed to prevent just that. It's the culmination of a decade of work by famed Harvard geneticist George Church and his former postdoc, Farron Isaacs. First, the researchers devised a way to repurpose all the TAG triplets in the genetic code, These usually signal for protein production to stop, but Church and Isaac swapped all the TAGs with TAA, another stop codon. That frees up the TAG codon so that the researchers can assign it a new function. In this case, they made TAG into a dedicated code for a synthetic amino acid, and then incorporated this codon into the recipe for various essential proteins. Church explained to me how this alteration will help limit the spread of GMOs. So uh, this organism has one or more proteins that are essential to the life of the organism that are dependent upon this synthetic amino acid, which is not available in the wild. And when when you don't provide that amino acid, other amino acids cannot uh, replace it. So the bug will basically only grow when you give it this non-standard amino acid, and if it finds itself out in the wild where that doesn't exist, it's toast? Right. This bug will only grow uh, when you give it the non-standard amino acid, and in the wild it can't find it, it can't scrounge it up from other uh, dying organisms, and so it won't grow. One problem is the genetically modified organism getting out and escaping into the wild. Another problem is it actually contaminating natural organisms through some kind of gene transfer or, or whatnot. Do we see that in the laboratory experiments that you've done with your bug? Any gene that we make, if that gene gets into another organism, it will be read as a stop. And even if it were read as anything other than a stop, it won't have the right amino acid to to have the gene function. So it's got a double barrier to uh, functioning outside of the industrially useful organism. I think when a lot of people hear the word genetically modified organism, they think of GM crops that will be planted in the wild, and there's worries about those spreading and and contaminating wild populations. In theory, could this strategy be used to limit the growth of these kind of plants to just the fields where we want them? You know, I think that one of the suggestions or complaints uh, about GM crops is the uncertainty about them spreading. And this directly addresses, tries to, uh, you know, I'm not predicting whether this is going to satisfy everybody, but it, it certainly attempts to address some of the concerns. Beyond agriculture, the new biocontainment strategy could be useful in medicine, 
environmental cleanup, and the energy sector. Farron Isaacs, who now runs his own lab at Yale University, explains. It's going to be a very important technology, for example, in biofuels, or now thinking about deploying engineered GMOs into environmental settings to counter challenges in bioremediation, toxic buildup, as well as looking at opportunities in medicine using these engineered organisms, for example, as probiotics that can really alter the composition of the microbial gut. So thinking now about how we're going to be able to do that really is rooted in establishing safety and security from the get-go to really enable more broad and open use of engineered organisms. What we've got then is a microbe that could be engineered for these various applications and one that has its own genetic safeguards built in. And that, says Todd Kukin, a policy researcher at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., that is unlike any GMO in the world today. What we're now starting to talk about is really completely synthetic organisms that are going to look nothing like one, a natural sort of comparator once it's put out into the environment. So what that organism is treated as under different regulatory statutes, I think, is going to be an interesting question. One thing is for certain, though, life as we know it just got a little less like we know it. For The Nature Podcast, I'm Ailey Dolgan in Boston. But Jeff, wait, what could meteorites tell us about the early solar system's magnetic field, I hear you ask? Don't worry, that's coming up after these micro-stories from the world of research with Noah Baker. Flex your wrist and you'll feel your arm muscles contract. Muscle bundles that can do the same thing have been grown in a lab. This is the first 3D model of human muscle tissue. A US team took living human muscle cells and grew them using a scaffold. The muscles could spontaneously twitch. When prodded with electrical pulses similar to nerve signals, the muscles contracted. The tissues also respond to drugs like steroids, meaning that the setup could be used to test other drugs for muscle disorders. That's in the journal eLife. The increasing price of gold is threatening tropical forests. Gold prices have risen steadily over the last decade, and it's become worthwhile for mining companies to extract it from more remote places. A 10-year study of forests in South America finds that almost 2,000 square kilometres of forest was cleared for gold mining. That's an area the size of London, England, or Toronto, Canada. Worse, these areas often coincide with biodiversity hotspots, and only a tiny portion was replanted. It's not a lot of land compared to the clearing for agriculture, say, but it is accelerating. Find the study in Environmental Research Letters. The early solar system was a turbulent place. Lots of matter bashed around and formed planets, as well as smaller bodies like dwarf planets and asteroids. Tiny chunks of these bodies have since made their way to Earth, where we know them as meteorites. These meteorites are like cosmic hard drives. Within them, tiny gem-like shards of metal, called palisites, can carry information about the magnetic history of the parent bodies they came from, data that was saved four and a half billion years ago. 
James Bryson at the University of Cambridge spoke to reporter Lizzie Gibney about what these ancient rocks can teach us about the early solar system and how the asteroids and dwarf planets they came from might be much more Earth-like than we'd believed. What did we already know about the bodies where these meteorites seem to have come from? So we know that they're in the asteroid belt at the present day, most of them. And we know a certain amount about their composition and their structure from looking at their geochemistry. But principally in my own research, what people over the last 10 years have been looking at is the magnetism that these meteorites carry and what that means in terms of the large scale structures of these planets. So how is it that these meteorites actually record something about the, uh, their parent body's magnetic field? So these meteorites, um, they're composed of a rocky part and a metal part. And within the metal part are these very small scale, just a couple of hundred nanometer islands of a very um, good magnetic recorder, similar to what you see in your computer or phone in a hard drive. So in, in hard drives, you've got these small uh, magnetic, very stable particles that record uh, whatever data you're saving. And uh, the islands within the metal part of our meteorite are actually very similar. And um, they record this magnetic field billions of years ago. And because of their stability, they've been able to preserve that to the present day, which allows us to investigate what happened billions of years ago in the lab through measurement. And what do these palisites actually look like? I understand they're, they're, they're quite stunning. Yeah, they, they, are, they have um, gem-quality olivine crystals that are about a centimetre big, and they are embedded in this continuous iron um, matrix. And you have these big slabs of these meteorites that can be about a metre across, and they contain hundreds to thousands of these crystals in this continuous metal that runs all the way through. And so from looking at these meteorites in particular that you've studied, what were you able to tell about, about the magnetic history of, of these meteorites and where they came from? So we were able to tell that they must have recorded a very late field in the planet's history. So most previous studies have found early fields and people have kind of suggested that these fields can't really be created after 10 million years after the solar system was formed. But we're seeing a field created hundreds of millions of years later. And the only way we can explain that is through a different type of motion in the core of this planet or asteroid, um, which hasn't really been considered on uh, bodies of this size before. So how did we um, previously think that they would have created their magnetic field and, and, and how is that changing now with your research? So previously people thought that the magnetic field could only be generated through the motion in the core of these asteroids through um, thermal effects. So if there's hot liquid, it would move up, and if there's cold liquid, it would move down, and this resulting motion creates a magnetic field. But that's not the case on the Earth at the present day. It's actually due to the crystallization and growth of the inner core in our Earth, in, in the Earth, um, which is causing the convection magnetic field. And what I've shown in my research is that exactly the same process happened billions of years ago on small planets. And the important point is that this convection is much more efficient than thermal convection, so it could have lasted for much longer and generated more intense magnetic fields. If these fields would last a lot longer and these were happening a lot um, later after the initial formation of the solar system, does that mean there, there would have been a whole period then when lots of these little planets would have, would have been magnetically active? I think so. That's, that's one of the main points I try and get across in my research, that given the efficiency of this mechanism at creating magnetic fields, it was probably very widespread among um, small bodies, so asteroids, it solidified in this manner. So ones that we might have heard of, um, Ceres or, or Vesta or Pluto, in fact, as a, as a dwarf planet, would they all have had magnetic fields, do we think? Um, there's, there's definitely evidence that Vesta created magnetic fields because we have some meteorites from Vesta and it looks like um, it was magnetically active. So that definitely could have generated it in the same way. Recent suggestions um, 
have also said the moon probably created a magnetic field in the same way a very long long-lived late stage uh, magnetic activity on the moon um, whether pluto has a core has never been never been observed but with the um, new horizons mission that's about to fly past it we might be able to look at its shape and say whether it has a core because if you've got a core you normally have a very spherical planet so we might be able to say some stuff about pluto's interior just from some images that new horizons are about to start sending back and if if protoplanets probably had magnetic fields and had cores does that make them all that different than from planets they essentially have seem to have a lot of the same characteristics um not really no they they, they appear to be or the evidence is, is gathering that suggests that they are to many intents and purposes just small versions of earth and other rocky bodies um which is really interesting because they're so small they cooled very quickly so they're essentially sped up small versions of earth or the moon which allows us to look at the whole history of the thermal activity on these planets so one of the aspects of my research is we're able to look at what happens as the core completely solidifies which obviously hasn't happened on earth in the present day but we're able to predict the kind of behavior we would expect to see when the earth's core does completely solidify in billions of years time so that little microcosms of, of our own future perhaps exactly yeah that was james bryson talking to lizzie gibney fascinating discussion and it actually made me think how much Kerry reminds me of a dwarf planet. Huh. Yeah, well, your core looks a bit molten. Well, that explains my magnetism. Get back in your orbit. You've fallen right off your axis there, haven't you? That was below the asteroid belt. If you don't come up with some more good jokes, you're going to be so an XO presenter of this show. (sighs) Got any good ones? Share them with us on Twitter, at Nature Podcast. News time now, and joining me in the studio is nature reporter Richard Van Norden. Hi, Richard. Hello, Jeff. So, today we are, first of all, going to discuss some very old Roman papyri that have now been able to be read. What's this? Well, when Mount Vesuvius famously erupted in 79 AD, it destroyed everybody nearby in Pompeii and Herculaneum. But in the 18th century, about 250 years ago, we uncovered an entire library of scrolls that had been carbonized by the volcano, turned to a kind of black, charcoaly log and twisted up, closed, impossible to decipher. And for the next 200 years, people tried to unroll them, cut them up, use a machine to read what was written, and they had some success. But about half of this library remains unreadable. So if unrolling these scrolls is so impossible, how have the scientists cracked it? They've done it with x-rays, and it sounds simple in a way. You think, well, when someone takes an x-ray of my body and shows up my skeleton, well, that's how x-rays work, isn't it? Unfortunately, the ink in the scrolls, which is carbon-based, absorbs x-rays in exactly the same way as the papyrus on which the ink sits. So that didn't work when scientists tried that six years ago. But today they say they've tried another technique using x-rays called x-ray phase contrast tomography. So inside these scrolls, there's hundreds of rolls of skewed, twisted papyrus, and the letters are raised about 0.1 of a millimetre above the papyrus, and it's that that we're detecting when we shoot the x-rays through. Did they work this technique out on just one scroll? So they put one scroll into a synchrotron in Grenoble and have just deciphered a few letters, a whole Greek alphabet, in fact, for what's written inside, which is amazing when you consider that we'll never be able to unroll this papyrus. So do we not have a clear understanding of what the papyrus actually said at this point? Well, we can decipher the handwriting, apparently, and we know that the letters are the same hand as a scribe who wrote some of the other texts that have been unrolled. And that means it's likely, based on the other texts, that this papyrus contains writing by a philosopher called Philodemus, 
who lived in the first century BC, about the same time as these papyrus actually date from. Why did they leave it at just a few letters? Is the assumption that we can read the whole papyrus? It's very, very slow. They just got some beam time at the synchrotron, which they needed for the x-rays. And just to decipher these mangled letters took a lot of work, and it's completely manual. Now, what they want to do is get a computer program to be able to speed this up, maybe digitise all of these images, maybe put them online and crowdsource the reading of each letter. There are thousands of letters in each scroll. Each scroll would unroll to about 15 metres long, so you've got a lot to read. And if they can speed all that up, then we could have hopes of reading much of this scroll and all the other scrolls. OK, well, we'll all be eagerly waiting to hear what secrets those scrolls have to offer. Next up, there's been an argument about when to officially start what geologists are calling the Anthropocene. The idea is that we are in a new geological epoch when humans influence the geological structure of our planet. And the term that's been coined for that is the Anthropocene. Geologists are now arguing, should we really call a new epoch an Anthropocene? And anyway, when do we start this era from? Now, a working paper last week from a group of international scientists has thrown their weight behind the idea that the first atomic bomb blast in 1945 should be the start of a new unit of geologic time. But some people don't agree with them. What other competing candidates are there for a date to mark the beginning of the Anthropocene? Well, you have to think of future geologists digging up layers of Earth and seeing a marked change and ascribing that to human influence. So another idea is perhaps the Industrial Revolution. Uh, One further idea is perhaps the transition between a deposit that's completely natural and one that's been altered by humans, like a layer of pottery-filled debris in a ploughed field. And of course, that layer would be different around the world, but that's going thousands of years back. So should it be thousands of years ago, or the 19th century, or perhaps as recently as the atomic bomb? Because the people that put this idea forward are led by Jan Zalazevich at the University of Leicester, who's lead author of this paper, this looks like a very influential suggestion that's going to go forward to the International Commission on Stratigraphy, which has to set whether we're going to announce a new geologic time unit. Now, none of this is settled. And to be honest, this process of of defining new epochs normally happens at a glacial pace that can take decades. So they're really hurrying forwards on this. But we won't know anything till 2016, when a subcommittee on quaternary stratigraphy will formally recommend this. And then we won't know anything until a few years after that. But this is actually a very, very fast discussion for geologists. They're used to waiting decades to define new epochs. And once they do define this new epoch, um, if you'll excuse the pun, will, will it then be set in stone? Once the International Commission on Stratigraphy says it, it is law. That, that body has the authority. So perhaps by 2020, this is going to be in the textbooks. Okay. And finally, we've got quite a happy story then about a British lander that we lost contact with in 2003 that has been papped on Mars. Listeners might remember Beagle 2, the shoestring budget craft that Britain launched. And on Christmas Day, it was supposed to hit the Martian surface, but it disappeared. Well, it is there. It did land successfully. It was spotted by NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter in a rather blurry picture, but it does seem to show that the craft landed but failed to open its antenna and phone home, which is exciting for the people in the mission who thought they'd failed, although perhaps bittersweet since nothing can be got from the mission. So we're confident that this blurry picture is indeed Beagle 2. 
Yeah, the mission manager Mark Sims says he's very confident that the picture is Beagle 2. It's consistent with uh, a shape that's opened some but not all of its solar panels. And we're talking a two-metre-wide craft on Mars, which is why it's taken so long for orbiting cameras to spot it. Almost 11 years. Exactly. And it was only really with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter's high-rise camera, which has a pixel resolution of about 25 centimetres, came online about a decade ago, was there any chance of finding it. Sim said there's an awful lot of rocks on Mars the size of Beagle 2, so it was a needle in a haystack job. Have we learned any lessons from this fuzzy pick? Well, good question, because of course the mission failed. Now, Sims says, well, I know that if I was to do the mission again, I would use crushable airbags that deflate on landing, because he thought the airbags might have got in the way. He would have put the antenna on the outside, so the mission could have phoned home. But most of all, I think it's a victory for British science, because the whole project was panned by the European Space Agency, who wrote a report in 2004, absolutely slating the enthusiasm and management of the project. Listeners might remember that Colin Pillinger, this very charismatic guy, was leading the project, and sadly he died in May 2014, so he never lived to see this news. But, you know, his enthusiasm and eccentricity was seen by some as amateurism, but in fact the mission worked very well, and it was probably just bad luck that the craft hit a rock or somehow just didn't quite succeed that final hurdle, but it got almost all the way there. So it is bittersweet, as I say, but it it is probably vindication for Pillinger and his work. Okay, thanks, Richard. If you'd like to read those stories in full, why not mosey on over to our news site, h.com slash news. And there you have it. Another Nature Podcast comes to a close. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh.